Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I cannot remember whether I have ever heard a sermon on this gospel text in an Episcopal church. Now part of that is the lectionary doesn't bring it up very often. It's only every three years and only then if Easter was early enough that we actually get to this reading that year. And part of that is that the other two readings for this date are really great readings to preach from. And so who wouldn't want to preach on either Galatians or Kings if they had the chance instead of on this gospel reading? The only time I remember for sure being involved with this gospel story in an Episcopal church was the time that I played a tap-dancing pig in a skit version of it. <laughs> because a tap-dancing pig is a great way to make any story lighter and funnier. <laughs> there is no story that a tap-dancing pig does not make happier. And we were looking for a way to make this story a little bit less heavy and less complicated and less real. In fact, the only times that I remember for sure hearing someone really take this story seriously and buy into it wholeheartedly are the times when I have heard it used as a weapon. I have certainly heard Christians use this story to try to show LGBTQ plus people that we are demon-possessed or that we can be freed from the chains of our sexual desires by which they always meant our sexual orientation or gender identity, not things like rape culture. I have heard Christians use this story as an incredibly dramatic example of what awaits us in this life and the next if we do not confess that our queer identity is a demon within us and that Christ can free us from it. If you are looking to preach that message, there is no better story than this one, because there is no more dramatic story of demon possession and exorcism in scripture than this one, where this man has to be kept under guard and chained and then rechained and then rechained because the demons keep breaking him out even of the chains, even where he lives literally among the dead. So it is a hard thing, but maybe not entirely a bad thing, to have this story come up in the lectionary on this Sunday, so soon after a horrible hate crime against people who were primarily queer and primarily Latino, when this story has so often been used as a weapon for so many of these people. And yet, Right in that moment of destruction, right in that attempt to claim this story for something that is not good, is itself, right in there, a glimmer of the truth and life that are in this story. Because the forces of evil do not bother with things that do not have power for good. The forces of evil want to take the things that are powerfully good and to twist them and claim that power as their own. Evil looks for things that have power or people that have power and tries to convince us 
that that power is actually the power of evil. And so what should be a story of love and grace becomes a condemnation, a warning of what happens if you don't live like everyone else. But this is not the truth of this story. That condemnation is at most what happens before Jesus walks into the story. The story that Jesus is enacting is a story of liberation. And maybe that explains best of all why this story scares us. Nothing scares us quite like liberation. Most of the time, if we put ourselves in this story, most of us are not standing in the place of Jesus casting out the demons, nor are we in the place of the possessed man, the most possessed by demons of anybody around. Mostly we are the bystanders and the locals who just want to be left alone with our own lives, the people of the region who are satisfied to have this man under guard away from them. We are satisfied to name that this person over there is the one with the problem. And there is enough truth in it because this man truly and dramatically is afflicted and oppressed by the demons in him in a different way from those around him. That we can pretend that there are not also things that oppress us that we feel powerless to escape. Probably most of us can think of something that is specific to our lives. Perhaps a difficult relationship or an addiction or a mental illness or something else. But certainly, certainly we all live in the grasp of racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and ableism and economic division and gun violence, and so often they seem to be inescapable. These things don't affect each of us the same way. Racism, for instance, does not pose the immediate danger to my life and livelihood that sexism does. For others, it's the reverse. For others, yet another something poses the most immediate danger. And yet all of these things are bad for all of us. So Jesus arrives at the country of the Gerasenes, having just crossed over into Gentile territory, and meets this man in chains, and yes, he is moved to free him. But Jesus also sees that once this man is free, the Gerasenes are terrified. They don't fall at his feet in gratitude and awe for what he has done. They say to him, go away, leave us alone. Sometimes these things that oppress us are also the things without which we cannot imagine our lives. And so we don't need chains to hold us. We are bound by our own fear. People who have been in AA or Al-Anon or similar programs will tell you that when someone gets sober, you start to notice a lot about the dysfunction happening in the people around them. It's not uncommon for families to fall apart after the addicted person gets sober, because actually getting free together is so incredibly hard that sometimes the family can no longer hold. 
The status quo is hard to change, not only because sometimes we don't think we want to, but because when it does change, it changes everything and everyone. Look, says the man, I am a new creation. This man has healed me. But the people around him are not desperate yet to be a new creation. They know that for this man to get free cost them a large herd of swine and the comfort of the world that works in predictable ways. And so they, and we, are afraid of what it will cost for everyone to get free. We are afraid it will cost us everything we have. Perhaps it will. What happens when white supremacy goes away? What happens when sexism goes away? Or when homophobia goes away? What will it actually cost us to put an end to gun violence? What could it possibly mean for us to live free? What would our lives actually look like? Do we even want to know? This is the question that Jesus and later Paul spent their lives answering. What does it look like to live free? Well, says Jesus, the kingdom of God is like a pearl and a field and a mustard seed. It is like a woman at a banquet she was not invited to, who becomes the hero of the story when she anoints Jesus' feet in love. It is like a man who had to be chained who becomes free. Well, says Paul, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Well, they say, let me describe what life looks like when you are really living in God's realm as God's new creation. The world offers the security of old categories, us and them, Jew and Greek, male and female. And Jesus promises and Paul preaches that the kingdom of God will take us entirely beyond those. We will not just be wiped clean and returned to the beginning. We will be made something new, something that breaks out beyond. The things that were woven into the fabric of our being in creation's design are now getting remade or undone. And this does not make us less who we are. It does not erase our identity, it makes us more who we are. At some point I encountered a maxim from somebody who is not particularly famous, not a known name, but I have come to really love this maxim that says, get to know Jesus well, because the more you get to know Jesus, the more you fall in love with him. And the more you fall in love with him, the more you follow him, and the more you follow him, the more you become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you become yourself. There is no longer a requirement to fit into a single binary option. There is no longer a requirement that we be just like those around us. There is no longer the requirement that sometimes seems to come to us from books like Joshua or Judges, where community identity sometimes seems to require a certain erasure of individual difference. This is the new creation 
where you are gloriously you. Jesus agrees to leave as the people have asked, but he tells the healed man, don't come with me. Go back home. Go back to your community, whether they want you to or not, and tell them what God has done for you. Tell them that it is better than predictability and comfort. Tell them that it is better than economic value. Tell them that it is better than tap-dancing pigs. If we will hear it, Jesus is saying the same to us. You are a new creation, a glory never before known to the world. Do not be afraid. Be what God is making you. And then go and tell what God has done. It will be worth whatever it costs. Amen.